talked to my family yesterday. They're doing well. They send you their greetings. Sooner or later, they'll be here. But they are here in, in spirit. You know, i got to tell you, y'all, I am very uh, humbled, honored, and just grateful to be here, to be uh, where, where God has me right now. So I know I don't know most of y'all, but either way, we're closer than some of my own kin, and I'm sure some of yours, and we'll spend forever. So I'm glad we've got this trek of the journey. We'll see what God has for us. Um, that's good. You know, we've been studying, we started a series on um, understanding the character of God, because the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. The most important thing about anybody the thing that will have more bearing on their life is what they believe about God. And this makes sense to us, right? Can you imagine somebody who doesn't believe there's a God? They don't believe there's a judgment. They don't believe there's a right and wrong. You do whatever you want. Certainly this is going to have an impact on how they live, right? Somebody who believes that God is a mean ogre who's going to slap them around every time they smile. Well, that's going to impact how they live as well. Somebody who thinks that God compares everybody to Adolf Hitler, you know, and I'm not as bad as Hitler. Well, that will impact how you live. Everything shy of mass genocide is okay, you know, so that impacts how you live as well. Uh, now, now, the problem is this. Everybody, all of us, doesn't matter how long you've known him, we've got a, a warped or twisted view of God. None of us understands him completely, perfectly, as well as we can. It would be nice to say that, that, that the only thing that shaped our view of God is his word. But that's not true. Our, our culture and our family and how we were raised and that radio preacher we heard way back when and that person who discipled us in college, even though they may have had a twisted view themselves. And all this stuff comes to bear on, on our understanding of God. And if the most important thing about us is what we believe about God, and if we've got a twisted view of God to an extent, it's pretty important that we try to align, that we try to get a pure view. And so that's our goal through this study, to get a pure view anyway of God. So we're looking at, at, at his character. And this is a prayer. I'm going to ask you all to we're going to stop in just a second. I'm going to ask you all to pray. And that is something like this. Dear God, would you show me you? I mean, here's my mind and my heart and everything that's messed up about me. But I really, really do want to know you. Would you open my eyes through your word to who you are? Maybe it's just me. But I can't imagine that that's not a prayer God wants to answer. And so let's take a second, right where you, where, where you are, just to bow and to ask God that, that he would open your eyes of your heart to who he is a little bit more. Even today, we, we pray this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. When I was in uh, high school, I worked for Golden Bear Restaurant. Now, how many of y'all worked for a restaurant at some point in your in your heritage, in your journey here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Golden Bear was kind of like a Perkins. It was a Denny's sort of place. And if you worked in something like this, some environment of this sort, you realize that during your peak time, your busiest time, the back room was just a horrendous mess, wasn't it? I mean, you had junk out of the cooler that, that was supposed to go back in, but you didn't have time, so you left it on the prep table and stuff from the freezer on the prep table, and you had stuff that, that you forgot to defrost that was in a sink full of water trying to defrost, and more dishes were coming in than the dishwasher could keep up with, and garbage everywhere. It was just, it was just a horrendous mess. And it seemed that it was always in one of these situations that the waitress would stick her head in the back room and utter the two words that were the worst possible words that, that anyone in the restaurant business could hear. She would say, health inspector. Right? Oh, no, not now, not now. And, 
changed at that point because the health inspector, I mean, that went to the top of the list. It didn't matter if the people ate. That was okay. As long as the health inspector wasn't closing us down. So we all flew into to emergency urgent mode. We were trained for this. We knew what to do. And the dishwashers and busboys came back and a couple of the waitresses and cooks. And we were just dragging garbage out and throwing stuff back in the cooler and covering things up and bleaching everything down and, and trying to mop the floor and get stuff out. We needed the place to look good. Now, the issue was not the health inspector's presence. The issue was our consciousness of his presence. If he had snuck in incognito and he never told anybody that he was here, he would still be about his mission. It wouldn't have impacted our life, at least until he shut us down, right? It, we, would, we would have kept going the way we were going. Now, let's just say that you're, you're uh, gals, you're going to work one, one morning and you leave early. And you get in, it's still kind of dark, and you park your car on the far side of the parking lot, and you walk in, small place, actually it's closed that day, but you got some stuff to do. So you get in and leave the door open, and you're there working all day by yourself. You leave, you, you, you're on your way home, it's kind of a late spring day, and so you go to your favorite park, which is kind of like out in the country-ish, and you walk through the woods, just kind of smelling and enjoying the, what God has done as creation. You get back home and you walk in your house. You forgot to lock the door, but no big deal. You sit down, put your feet up, read the mail. Now, great day, right? But now, what if, what if you knew that during this whole day, there was a creeper stalker behind you? I mean, if this person just got out of prison a couple of months ago, but they were watching you through their telephoto lens all day. They were at work when you got there. They, they followed you out into the woods. Would you have still done all the things you did? Would you have parked on the far side of the, the parking lot and walked in at dark and went out to the woods by yourself and left your door unlocked? Of course you wouldn't. And it's not his presence that would alter your, your actions. It's your consciousness of his presence. Let's say that you're, you're going downtown at night. You know, let's paint a real bad scenario here. You got and the car breaks down in the worst possible place. And you realize your cell phone is back on the counter in the kitchen. So you got to get out and you got to walk it. You're by yourself. And there's a gas station kind of about three blocks away. It's a shady place, but it's the best you can do. So you start walking. There's no one on the streets except this gang of about ten teenage guys across the street. And you don't want to judge these folk, mind you, but you know they're not the Salvation Army band. And you're looking at them going, oh, man. And they're wearing their colors and maybe they're, 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 look, they're looking rough. And they see you and they start talking among themselves. And they look up. Now tell me, what's going through your mind and your heart? And then you look behind you. You're getting ready to run. You look behind you. You notice right behind you, right at your heels, three massive guys. I mean, these guys are like a combination of James Harrison and, and uh, Goliath and a sumo wrestler. You know, and, and they've got, they got the uh, Steven Seagal ponytail and the dark glasses. And they've got the hitman smirk on their face. They're all wearing trench coats. And they're, they're, they've got their hand in their coat, maybe holding their sawed-off shotgun. And you recognize that these guys are your brothers. You grew up with these guys. They love you immensely. They would let the world fall apart before they let anything happen to you. Now, what do you think about those guys across the street? You know, hey, boys, you should be in bed by now. I mean, you're, you're worried about those guys because you're safe. But you're not any more safe than you were a few minutes ago when you were freaking out. The difference isn't their presence. It's your consciousness of their presence. You see where this is going, right? The issue isn't God's presence with us. He's with us. That doesn't that's. The issue is our consciousness of it. And so often we live our lives without the consciousness of God's presence. And the thing that's going to make the difference, it made the difference in all those scenarios, it makes the difference in our life, is our consciousness of his presence with us. 
Now, now this, this works on a couple of different things. Theologians call this God's um, omnipresence, omni, his all, his universal presence. And what they uh, mean by this is that God is everywhere always. I mean, he's everywhere always. Psalm 139, we just heard it read. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. That word for depths is sheol. That's sometimes interpreted grave. Sometimes that's interpreted hell. And what, when Solomon was dedicating the temple, and this is what he says about the temple. He says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, the whole universe cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. What this means is there's not a centimeter of space anywhere in the whole universe, in any dimension, that God is not there 100%. This isn't pantheism. God isn't all these things, but he is everywhere. He's in the the boardrooms in New York. He's in the jungle of New Guinea. He's in the halls of, of Italy's Vatican. He's in the back room of Sweden's brothels. He's on death row and skid row. God is everywhere. He cannot not be. You know, heaven... One day we think we're going to go be with God. Well, God is no more in heaven than he's here. Uh, when, you, when you read in Revelation, uh, John's description of heaven, he, he, the issue is not a quantity or quality of God that we get, we get when we get to heaven. More than anything else, it's an absence of the curse that John points out with what heaven is about. That allows us to see him more clearly. But, but, but God is everywhere. Now, it gets a little bit better than that. Because God is not just everywhere. God is Always with me. He's always with you. I mean, always. He was with you the moment you were conceived. He was with you the day you were born. He, was, he could tell you exactly what you were thinking when you were three years old, uh, two months, seven hours, 15 minutes. He, he knows exactly because he was there. He can tell you exactly what you'll be thinking in seven years, four days, because he's already been there. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it, O Lord, because he's omnipresent. He's not limited to time. He's lived in the present or the future already. Uh, he is everywhere. He's always been. He's always been with me. Now, some folk, I mean, as believers, he, so he's with everybody, right? Common grace, he's with everybody. But with believers, those who surrendered their life to him, there's a special presence that he gives, right? Right? He, he's in the, the person of his Holy Spirit. He's with us in a mysterious but unmistakable way. Now, some folk are nervous. Some Christians are nervous about this presence. They kind of don't like it. They feel like maybe God's giving them the rule book, and then he's walking behind them just to watch. He's carrying a big old stick, and he's just waiting for them to violate something. And so they're going, oh, man, I don't know if I like this. Or they think that God's presence is he's kind of anemic, you know? He just kind of is, is following behind them now that they've given their life to him, just kind of watching how, how they do life and watching what goes on. And he's saying, oh, don't do that. No, 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 no. But, but that hurts. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go. Yes, better, better. Oh, life is hard. But, you know, there's heaven one day. It's okay. And they think that God's presence is kind of like that. Life is going to be rough till we get to heaven, but then, it will be, then we'll really know God and we'll, we'll experience his presence. That's not, that's not, not so. Isaiah 49, what's he say? Uh, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Now, let me, let me ask you, gals, you've just got your, your infant child. Can you forget or can you, can you neglect this baby? Your nursing baby? I mean, generally speaking, this is not possible, is it? Mama bears are committed to their cubs. They'll give everything. They will sacrifice their life multiple times over if they can to protect. But God is saying that as great as that love is, 
It's nothing compared to my few. They may forget, but I won't. My love for you, my commitment to you, my presence with you blows away that. Psalm, Psalm 139. It says, this is the reason why we can't flee from his presence. This is why we can't get away from him. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Now, here's the deal. God is with us, but he's not with us to observe us. He's with us to preserve us. That's that's huge difference. And that's all over Scripture. God is not with us to observe us. He's with us to preserve us. That is major. That is majorly significant. Now, what we want to do is we want to look at a case study in Israel's history to just see if this is really true. Because if you're like me, sometimes you go, well, yeah, I hear that. But I know how my life has gone and what has happened at times, and I just really wonder if that's legitimate. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13. We're going to be in a couple different places uh, this uh, morning, but Exodus 13 is where we want to start. And what, what has happened, Israel has uh, been in... Egypt, they've been in the womb of, of Egypt for 430 years. They've been growing. They've been uh, becoming viable. They've just been birthed out of, out of the womb of, of, of Egypt. In verse 17, it's chapter 13, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, If they face war... They might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Now, we, we see several different things about God's leading here. This is, this is, this is uh, significant because you might think, especially if you're a new believer, I know this was true in my mind when I first came to Christ, that, yay, God has me for heaven one day. That's fantastic. You know, it's kind of like he loosed the chains and he said, go, you're free. You know, freedom, go, and, and I'll see you in heaven. And if you get in trouble somewhere along the line, just call for me and I'll see what I can do. That's kind of the thought. But, 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 but this is interesting. This is not what God did. He didn't just say, okay, you're out of Egypt. Just go. Holy land is that way. Take off. It says he led them. And, and notice how he led them. He didn't take a vote, right? He didn't say, okay, what do you all think? How should we get there? What should we do? If, in fact, they would have taken a vote, they would have said, well, let's go up through the coast. Now, Egypt, wish I had a map. I don't. Egypt is down here. All through here is the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, this is all the, the, the sea. Egypt's down here. Promised land's up here. Well, how are we going to get there? Well, easy enough. A straight line, man. Let's go up along the coast. And it's the most beautiful route. It's the most economical route. It's the most efficient route. And, of course, we know God's all about efficiency. It is the most family-friendly route. It's where we're going to get food for our people. It's the most beautiful route. Yeah, let's go up along the coast. And if you were to put in your, your Google Maps or MapQuest, you know, we're starting in Egypt, but we want to go to the Promised Land. How do we get there? It would say, go up along the coast. If you had pumped in your GPS, how do we get there? It would say, go up along the coast. It makes sense. But God knows something they don't know. He knows if you go along the coast, there's some people there, there's some things there, there's some situations there. They're going to trip them up. They're going to hurt them. Now, God's goal is to get them to the promised land, but God's goal isn't always a straight line. It's not God's way. So, so, so God leads them into the desert. Now, these guys are probably excited to get out of, out of Egypt, 
But can you imagine when they, they get the crossroads and there's a sign that says promised land this way and there's one that says desert this way and God takes them this way? They're going, wait, what are you doing? God, I mean, promised land's that way. And you're taking us into the desert and we've got nursing mothers and we've got some folk who can't walk so well and we've got, we've got uh, uh, lots of people to feed and we're going out into sand. And, and uh, God, why are you taking us into the desert? Why did you take us out of Egypt to bring us here? You can imagine they would have some questions. There's no GPS in the world that would lead them this direction. It goes against common sense. They know where they're supposed to go. Let me ask you, have you ever been frustrated maybe with God's leading? Because you know where you're supposed to go. The promise, he's pro- you know where you're supposed to go. It makes sense. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out this is the best way. It's the most efficient way. And we know God's all about efficiency. It's the most economic way. It's the most family-friendly way. It's the way I'm supposed to go. But God leads you into the desert. You wonder what in the world. Obviously, he, he's, he's left us. Something has happened. Now, God is going to get his people to the Holy Land. We don't make no doubt about it. One day, David and the Israelites are going to come through Gaza Strip. That's the coast. And they're going to take care of them. But now it's not the time. Now the Gaza Strip will take care of his people. Maybe you're in high school. And you're saying, oh, God, I just want so much to be accepted, and I just want so much to have these friends, and just what, what's the problem? Why, can't, why don't I fit in? Why don't I work? And God's saying, listen, I know something you don't know. And if I lead you that direction, there's just some stuff that way that you're not set for that's going to hurt you. And so it feels, it's feeling like desert right now. But there's things you need to learn in the desert. It really is. I'm not there to observe your life. I'm there to protect, to preserve your life. There's stuff you learn in the desert, right, that you can't learn anywhere else. God wants to first give them the dimensions of the tabernacle. He wants to show them the Ark of the Covenant, which is a sign of his presence with them always. God wants to teach them how to worship him because all they know is how they did it in Egypt. He wants to give them their new holidays and their new, new guidelines and new government. There's a lot of stuff he has to teach them. They're armed for battle. They think they're ready. But God knows they're really not ready. Sometimes we think we're set. We know which way to go. And God says, no, no, you've got to trust me on this. He leads us the other direction, just as he did these guys. By day, verse 21, it says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel the day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. God made it very clear he was, he was leading. You know the story because, of course, in time, Pharaoh wakes up and he says, What happened? Why, where did these guys go? What have I done? Who's going to build my pyramids? You know, who's going to serve me? And there goes my economy out the front door and we've got to go get them. So he gets all of his chariots and he gets all of his warriors together and says, Let's go get these guys. And so they take off. So, so God, Moses, has led them right to the front of the Red Sea. But the guys in the back of the line are looking and they're seeing uh, Pharaoh's armies and Pharaoh's greatest war machine they know of coming at them. The, the panzer units are coming in and they're getting nervous. And the guys in the front line are ankle deep in Red Sea and they're looking at, at that going, they're getting nervous, going, what are we going to do here? And so the people call out, ah, God! And God has a plan. Because this is wherever God directs, this is a huge principle in Scripture. Wherever God directs, He protects. He's got a plan. And so He moves to the back. Verse 19, it says, When the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them, the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. 
coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. God wasn't with them just to observe, just to watch, to watch them get clobbered, but to preserve for us just to know. This is so comforting, isn't it? To know that there's no uh, maverick virus, there's no terrorist, there's no goofy guy with a gun that, that can take one moment of your life or mine that's not, not in God's plans. Nothing can happen to us unless it's come through God's, God's hand. God's plan usurps. He holds the trump card. He holds complete sovereignty over everything. He is with us to not to observe us, but to preserve us, just as he does here. Now, flip over to, to Numbers. I know it, Numbers chapter 13. I know it might look like or feel like you're moving some distance. You're only moving a couple of months, though. So. Numbers 13. They've come through the, right up to the gate of the promised land. God's got them there. They had to go the long distance because he had things to teach them because they weren't ready. But they're there. They're at the gate of the promised land. And they sent in their spies. You know the story, right? And the spies are gone for about a month. And they're there to go on some covert spy mission and, and check out the land and come up with their topography and their maps and, and noticing the weak places and the strong places. So the, the word gets back around the camp in a hurry when the spies walk back in that day. The spies are back. Wow, let's see what they said. And so there, all the people start gathering. The spies are meeting with Moses and all the people start gathering around. What are they going to say? They're going to tell us about the promised land. This is great. And so the spies start to give their report. Verse 27. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which he sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. I don't know if they were figuring on like big banners, you know, welcome Israelites, you know, or, or what. But they're going to all the neighborhoods are filled. There's nowhere we can sit. They're all there. We can't do anything. And so they came back and they, they, were, they were discouraging the people. Verse 30, it says, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses. And said, now, why did he have to silence the people? I'm guessing they were grumbling to each other. Oh, no, do you believe this? Oh, no. We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. And it's not such a great land anyway, right? They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. As soon as they said Nephilim, all the people would go, oh, and fall back. Because the Nephilim were the giants of war. These guys are telling the story. I have this, I have this feeling that it's just picking up a little bit of steam. You know, not the way you and I would tell it, but you know, other people we know would tell it. Where it just gets a little bit bigger. It gets just a little bit, little bit uh, more urgent and a little bit more drastic and we got to defend ourselves and and you know make reason why we've done what we've done and so we we tell the story just a little bit different than what it is and he's saying that there, there are giants there everywhere it's all the people we saw are giants you know and they're two-headed and they got the fangs and they're drooling and they're spitting fire and forearms and they're gonna kill and moses wants us to get into a cage fight with these guys and he keeps going he says that all the people were of great size. He says, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. 
and we look the same to them. You know, that, that, that last line has always intrigued me. How, does, how did they know what they look? Did they take a survey? Hey, y'all, what, what do you think we look like? You know, do we look like, what do we look like grasshoppers? How do they know? I'm guessing, just like us, they projected, don't, they, don't we do this? You know, the people just think I'm crazy. They think I'm some Jesus freak, goofy, uh, uh, unstable person. You know, do they? We project that that's what they think of us. But, but I, I, don't, I don't know. If the Spirit of God's working their heart, that's not what they think of you. I know that for sure. What do, I don't, but we project that. And we, we, we hide behind that. Moses wants us to be killed. And so 14, verse 1, it says, That night the people of the community raised their voices and wept. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord... Isn't that interesting? If only we had died in this desert. You've got to be careful what you, what you talk about, what you say, what you hope for, right? They're going to get that wish. Why is the Lord bringing us to the land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It's interesting that it says here that all of Egypt, or all of Israel grumbled, all of Israel wept. The way I, I read it, only 12 guys saw the, the land, and then only 10 of them had a bad report. But their report colored everybody else's perspective. Huge, didn't it? Now, this is this is parenthetical kind of thing. But if you've got kids at home, just, we just for me, I just got to continually remember this. The best way to disciple my children is not precept. It's important that I teach them, but it's by modeling, right? Uh, if my come up against the giants and they see dad freaking out and no faith and, and falling apart, what am I teaching them? Uh, they see us in our situations of life, and that's where they get their, their cues. That was what was happening there. So, so Joshua and Caleb thought they've got to give it one more shot. They've got, they got to keep going. So end of verse 7, they start. And they said, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Now, you would think at this point that the people would wake up a little bit and they'd go, Oh, yeah, the Lord is with us. We just saw several months ago we were hanging out in Egypt. These guys saw the ten blanks. Yeah, that's right. I remember. I could, yes, thank you. He's with us. What he did then, he could, yes, certainly. Let's go. So my paraphrase of the next verse is, And so the people took heart at what, what Joshua said and said, Let us go into the land and destroy the inhabitants because God is with us. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. What's it say? It says, the whole assembly talked about stoning them. They didn't appreciate that at all, did they? They knew cognizantly of God's presence. They didn't debate that. But they weren't willing to trust it in consciousness of it. That's a huge difference. Wouldn't it have been a great time for God to kind of like just speak to the people? Just be, listen, they're right. I'm telling you, go into the land, you knuckleheads. Just take it over. Listen to me. You'd think that that would just be a great place. But you know what? It seems as if the people um, 
mistook God's quietness for his absence. Don't we do the same thing? Don't we do the same thing? I remember I was at uh, Moody freshman year. It was a great year. It was a great year for me. Spiritually huge. But that summer, something started to happen in my heart. Uh, I'd pray, and I didn't feel God's presence. And I would want to feel the presence that I kind of felt when I was, I'd pray, God, show yourself, and he wouldn't show himself to me. So I started thinking, maybe he's not real. Now, this is quite a dilemma, isn't it? Here I am, going to give my life and all the little money I have for college to learn how to be a pastor, when I'm not even thinking God is real. Maybe he's not even real. What is this about? So I went back to Moody next year. And it was incredible, probably the darkest time I ever had spiritually in my life. I remember I would kneel by my bed in the evening and cry because I couldn't pray because maybe he's not there. And I would scream out, please, would you show me yourself? Nothing. Please, just one thing, just one manifestation of some sort, please. Nothing. You'd think he'd say something. I mean, that wasn't asking for a lot. Just want one little thing, one word, one something, one vision, one something. Nothing. And finally, I, I remember one night, my poor roommate must have thought I was coming unglued. I was. I guess I was coming unglued, wasn't I? And, and I, I remember I was on my knees and crying, crying out and just crying. And finally, I was just frustrated. I was tired of this, man, because I was, this has been, this is a couple of months of this kind of thing. And it was just wearing me out. And so I said, I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure out what this book says and I'm going to live my life to this thing as best as I can. And whatever happens to me in this life is your fault. I don't recommend you do that. But I think the goof, and I I was probably expecting to get struck by lightning at that point. And you know what? I didn't care at that point. But it was almost as if, I mean, it was a piece. I can't tell you everything was fixed at that moment. But there was almost a piece that, that there was a piece. It was almost as if God said, I'll take you up on that. Yeah. If you give your life 100% to me, you, you live as if I'm really there, not pretending, not faking it, faithing it. You, you trust my word. I'll take 100% responsibility for everything that happens to you. That was, that was really the beginning of a, of a whole new chapter of my, my life spiritually, of, of living by faith in his presence it amazes me when you when you take away the presence of christ for christianity you've really taken away the best thing haven't you i mean it's the best thing if you take away god's presence what have you got you've got you've got a rule book you've got some values and perspectives and some rituals you really don't have much else other than another world religion you take away his presence and what amazes me is some christians are okay with this they live their life as if that's okay. One day I'll see them, but right now all I've got is the rule book and some values and some perspectives and some ritual. And they live their life as if they're kind of enduring a life sentence. It's, 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 it's missing the joy because it's missing the intimacy. Now, this, again, is all over Scripture. When God first took these guys out of Egypt, remember he gave them the, the cloud and, and the pillar of fire because he wanted them to know his presence. And that lasted until he got to Sinai, where he gave him the directions for the temple and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, which was a sign of his presence. And that took him all the way up to the time of Jesus, where his presence came to us in an incredible manner. 
because he so much wanted us to know his presence and that he would walk with us and take away the thing that would keep us from knowing his intimacy. And then just before Jesus left, he said, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going to send you another comforter, the Holy Spirit, to remind you of my, he will be with you for forever because I will never leave you or forsake you. God's been on a campaign, huge, to remind you and me that he is very present with us. Now, can you imagine how our lives would be different if we lived in a constant consciousness of his presence? Can you imagine how First Alliance Church of Erie would be different if, if, if all of us lived in a, a continual consciousness of him, enjoying that intimacy, trusting him when we're in the desert? Can you imagine how God might use that on the city of Erie, Pennsylvania? If, if, if his people lived in a constant, conscious awareness of his presence. If he would say one thing to us today, he'd say, all my attributes and all, all the great things that I am, the only way, I mean, the only way they are uh, recognized in your life is when you live in consciousness of my presence. That's when all of everything I am comes to bear on who you are. But pragmatically, it means nothing to you personally unless... You're walking in a constant consciousness of my presence where he comes not just to observe us, but to preserve us. Take a moment and pray with me. God, I'm thankful that it's not about how much uh, I'm in your presence, but how much you're in mine. And I thank you, even when these guys ditched you and they went out to the desert. You didn't ditch them. You followed them out there. You gave them manna. You made their sandals not wear out. Even though we can walk away from you, you'll never walk away from us. Your commitment to us is to preserve us. And Lord, for anybody here who has walked away from you at one point, they used to live in your presence, God, but they've walked away. Would you remind them that you haven't left them? Would you remind them, God, that you're there to Preserve them, but your desire is for them to come back. And holy God, for, for us who are trying to be conscious of you, but God, you know how bright and shiny the world is and how prone we are to wander. Would you remind us, would you remind me, Lord, to constantly be conscious of, of who you are, to lean into your presence with us that we might know you, that we might understand joy in walking with you, that we might trust you, and that others in this world might see you. They might see us and recognize that we were with Jesus. I would pray that in his name. Amen.